Hello and welcome to MacBytes episode 170. I'm Elaine Giles and I'm here with my co-host Mike Thomas. In this episode, we have more incompetence than even I thought possible. Google locking up the web and attacks on the tech challenged. Welcome back and if you're new, great to have you with us. Welcome to the MacBytes family. MacBytes is a tech podcast where we share our thoughts on tech news, Apple Kit, and so much more. We also review apps and as IT professionals, we share both our love for hardware and software. We're a quirky show. Check some of the stories from the Newbies Guide to MacBytes that you'll find at macbytes.co.uk and you'll see exactly what I mean. So, what are we starting with, Mike? Following on from the last show where we talked about muting Zoom, I've got another muting story. The other day, somebody posted to Workplace asking for some help at work with Nucleus. Regular listeners will know that that's the name of our intranet. I saw her post in my feed and being the Nucleus trainer, pinged her. She'd added three videos to a page that she'd created. She'd hit play to test the videos. And even though the volume was turned up on each instance of the embedded player, there was no audio. It couldn't have been a problem with the audio on her laptop as we were talking via Teams and she could hear me. I asked her to go to another page on Nucleus that had a video in it. So she found one and pressed play. No audio. I wondered if it was a Chrome issue. So I asked her to go to another site outside of AZ and play a video. I normally use the BBC. It's my go-to test site. But she chose to go to YouTube and find Taylor Swift video. I thought, if you're going to go to YouTube, you could at least have picked one of my videos and upped my view count. Anyway, the audio was fine. It then hit me. Hit me? No, that was Britney Spears, not Taylor Swift. Anyway, back on the original page, I asked her to right-click on the Pages tab. And there it was, Unmute Site. Which means that any page from the Nuclear site has its audio muted. I guess she must have turned it on accidentally. So she clicked unmute site, hit play on a video and out came the audio. One happy lady. And sticking with work, a couple of shows back, I talked about my woes with Camtasia. Well, one of my colleagues had exactly the same problem. He'd posted in Teams that he'd recorded a video on his AZ Mac and there was no audio. When I asked him about it, I assumed it was operator error, that he'd not set the audio source to be his microphone. But no, it had recorded the audio. It was just really low and, in his words, sounded like a broken record. I asked him if he had Ventura installed on the Mac. He didn't know. He said 13. I said, yeah, that's Ventura and told him it's a known issue and that I'd had the same problem on my personal iMac. Although, if you remember my description, it was a Dalek, not a broken record. But in his defence, I don't think he's a Doctor Who fan. I said that he'd have to get the begging bowl out and write an email justifying why he needed an upgrade. But he said he'd found a workaround. He recorded the audio and video using QuickTime and then loaded the resulting file into Camtasia. Work to treat. In another round of gross ineptitude, more data was leaked this week from the UK police. Norfolk and Suffolk constabularies, to be precise. This time including, I kid you not, details of victims and witnesses. 1,230 of them. 
including victims of sexual offences who have a legal right to anonymity. The excuse this time was, no, not human error. No, it was a technical issue. I think that's another phrase for human error. It was another case of data in a spreadsheet on a hidden tab. So, no one will find that then. Idiots. The most insulting part of this was the statement that said, those affected would get a mail by the end of September, informing them that they were included in the breach. I assume they mean this September, but given the idiocy on display so far, maybe not. In Northern Ireland, a man was arrested over collecting information useful to terrorists after last week's breaches. I wish that this were the end of the Northern Ireland debacle. Sadly, it is not. You may remember that one of last week's breaches included the theft of a laptop and a pen drive from a vehicle. In a deja vu moment this week, I thought I was reading the same story. But it soon became clear that I wasn't. There was yet another data breach there. It too involved a vehicle. It too involved a laptop. But instead of a pen drive, it involved a notebook. To be more precise, it involved a range of pages from a notebook. Yes, a physical notebook. I wondered how only certain pages could be missing. Which was when I got to the part about them and, again, I quote, falling from a moving car. How did they manage that? In all the years I've been driving, I've never had a laptop or a notebook jump up from the back seat and dive out of the window. I had actually stopped reading at that point to ponder the physics that would have needed to be at play for this one. But then I was interrupted. I made a note and I dealt with the interruption. Later, I mentioned this story to Mike, who must have thought I'd either partaken of some mushrooms of an adult nature or taken to the bottle. You headed off to read the story, didn't you? Which was when we both discovered that the laptop and the paper notebook had been left on the roof of the vehicle. <clears throat> Flying off as the vehicle joined the motorway. That's the freeway to our US listeners. My question at that point was how did they survive that long? Reports are that the laptop was recovered, as were some of the missing pages. So, police officers were combing the verges of the motorway looking for missing pages. So, so, so many questions. Is there no IQ test for those seeking to join the police in Northern Ireland? May I respectfully suggest that it might be a good idea to implement one? And staying in Ireland, but heading south to the Republic of Ireland. The location of another calamitous tech fail this week. The Bank of Ireland's app was allowing customers, with no money, to transfer money and then withdraw it from ATMs. It was described as a glitch or a technical blunder, or as I call it, Gross stupidity. There were queues wrapping around banks to the extent that police were called to guard the cash points. Like they don't have enough to do already. Like recover pages from missing notebooks. Mm. And why would people think this was free money? As the bank confirmed, all money withdrawn would be debited from their accounts and would involve fees if it made you overdrawn. Human nature and greed at its absolute worst. 
Not to mention incompetence, since this also happened in June as well. Regular thing, free money, apparently. Oh, and then Elon's idiocy continued. He's changed the Twitter logo yet again. Now, you may not have noticed this, but if you look carefully, it now has a grunge look. Elon says it looks edgy. I thought I had dirt on my iPhone screen. It looks like a passing bird left a little present all over it. Elon, pro tip, leave the design to the designers. Now, not satisfied with design sacrilege, he then decided we should no longer have the option to block people. He did deign to allow us to block people from sending DMs, but beyond that, it's going to be a free-for-all. Now, comically, the only person I have ever blocked is Elon. Sadly, it looks like I'll be seeing his verbal diarrhoea should anybody I follow retweet him. The even funnier part of this latest missive was the fact that the Twitter fact-checker fact-checked him. It reported he wouldn't be able to do that since the App Store and Google Play rules are that users must be able to block people. Yes, he really did. He got fact-checked by his own fact-checker. That's them out of work next week. You could not make this stuff up, I swear. And that was before something else went wrong at Twitter HQ and all user photographs and links from 2011 through to 2014 were deleted. The only question here is how has Twitter survived so long into Elon's reign? I'm beginning to wonder. Oh, and Alexa was in hot water too last week for not knowing about the English women's team and their adventures at the Football World Cup. It's as if the critics think she's a sentient being and deliberately taking no notice of women's sport. How is she supposed to know if someone responsible for telling her doesn't tell her? Talk about convenient scapegoating. Blame the inanimate object for the sins of the data entry operative. Google have something sly and devious up their corporate sleeves. They say it's a proposal to ensure trust on the web. What's that phrase? Something is rotten in the state of Denmark. Google and trust in the same sentence. Mm. The upshot of this idea is that sites would have the right to control which browsers have access to them. So potentially blocking specific browsers from a site owned by Google or Microsoft. Imagine you not being able to choose which browser you access Gmail via. Who could think that was a good idea? Mm. Google calls it Web Environment Integrity, WEI. Sites would ask for a WEI token that, and I quote, describes key facts about the environment their client code is running in. Then the website would decide whether to trust the token and grant access or not. So general sites with no skin in the browser game would likely need to trust a wide variety of browsers. But what about Google and Microsoft, though? They most definitely have skin in the browser game. Vivaldi and Mozilla have already voiced their concerns. This comes on top of reports of companies steering users to their own browsers, especially when a user is trying to download an alternative browser. I can confirm that myself when I was using Safari to download Vivaldi. 
macOS nearly lost its mind. Vivaldi do make a good point, though, and that point is that the EU is unlikely to allow such shenanigans, the EU being responsible for the USB-C cable decision. I won't mention Brexit. Hopefully the EU will ensure it doesn't happen and we will be able to ride their coattails and continue to use any browser we choose. This story about Ryanair absolutely infuriated me. An elderly couple were charged £110 by Ryanair for printing their tickets at the airport. They called it a check-in fee, which they were charged after the lady mistakenly downloaded the return tickets instead of the outgoing tickets. Ryanair, being their usual compassionate selves, said the fees were in line with its policy as the couple had failed to check in online for the correct flight. The lady said she found the website confusing and I can only imagine that. Even the best sites are a nightmare at times. In fact, I recently had the misfortune to have to use a government site. I was already logged in when it told me I needed to click a specific link to use the beta version of the site. Given no other option, I clicked the link. It asked me to log in again. Yes, 30 seconds after I'd just logged in. Both logins were done via 1Password. The second one failed, telling me I'd used the wrong username or password. Yeah, not possible. But how do you argue? It also told me it would block me from the site if I didn't get the details correct within the next two attempts. I was faced with not being able to submit what I needed to submit, and if I didn't, there was going to be a £2,000 fine. I pondered. I decided to head back to the page where it did accept that I was logged in and go in the long way round. Thankfully, it didn't choke and I was able to complete the process. But I know what I'm doing and I always start from the principle of if it can go wrong, it will. Now, even though it did complete the process for me, each page took an absolute age to load. And that was about 11pm at night because I know enough to know to avoid the busy times. Someone replying to the daughter's complaint to Ryanair on Twitter said it would have been cheaper to buy a printer at the airport and print them themselves, which was sad but true. It also turned out the couple had had to pay extra to be able to sit together because the husband had a disability. I wonder how long it'll be before they start charging £55 to use the toilet on the flight. For all I know, they're doing that already. Now, while I haven't flown since the 1980s, I must admit I fail to understand this online check-in thing. Shouldn't you, and all your paperwork, and all your luggage, be checked by staff at the airport, not some automated excuse to make staff redundant? Because security should be paramount, not Ryanair's bottom line. But what did Ryanair have to say? Nothing you wouldn't want to ram back down their throats, I can assure you. But here goes. Ryanair said in a statement, in accordance with Ryanair's terms and conditions, which these passengers agreed to at the time of booking, they failed to check in online before arriving at Stansted Airport on the 11th of August, despite receiving an email reminder on the 10th of August to check in online. These passengers were therefore correctly charged the airport check-in fee, £55 per passenger. 
All passengers travelling with Ryanair agreed to check in online before arriving at their departure airport, and all passengers are sent an email or an SMS reminding them to do so 24 hours before departure. We regret that these passengers ignored their email reminder and failed to check in online. Wow! They made a mistake. Cut them some slack. It's not like they left a police-issue laptop and notebook on the top of a vehicle and headed off up the motorway, is it? I wonder if that clown was fined for their actions. Another point is, not everyone has a printer. Even we didn't for months. We've got plenty of kit, but we did not have a working printer. It broke and we didn't bother replacing it for an age. Not many of our friends have printers. We counted one when we were thinking about this. Our printer doesn't see much action, but it's there should we need it. By all means, offer a tech-savvy option, but don't disenfranchise those less tech-aware people. It's taxing the tech-challenged. Which leads us nicely onto the fiasco that this year's United season ticket turned out to be. You may recall United changing the way season tickets worked a couple of seasons ago. It all went digital. You could also say it all went A over T as well. With the digital tickets and the fact that our seats were in the middle of the quarantine zone, we had a nightmare of a season. Every match they sent us tickets for different seats, at different prices. Now, since it was their idea to move us, they promised the tickets would be the same price as the original seats, irrespective of where they were. It wasn't our idea to move to the prawn sandwich stand. No, that was them. Thankfully, Mike dealt with it all, as there's no way I wouldn't have ended up in custody for my reaction to their collective incompetence. But you were ringing them literally every match, most of the time, several times per match, and you were the only one that knew what was going on. And that was only because the process they needed to follow, you'd already written down. Do you know, you should have charged them. Yes, that was a farce. I was being told different things by different people each time I rang up. I had people going to their supervisors and saying they'd have to call me back, which meant taking my phone off DND during the working day. In the end, like you said, I asked one of the guys I spoke to what he'd done to change our tickets back to the original prices. He told me, I wrote it down, and the next time I was told, sorry, the system won't let us change your ticket price, I said, oh yes it can. Well, it did feel like pantomime season. Which brings us on to this year. Long gone are the days when they send you your season ticket in a presentation pouch, with a free pen and a gold badge. They took the money in May, before the previous season was even finished. Then, crickets, until the peasants started to ask questions. Then, with 12 days to go until the new season, they announced they would be making an announcement the following Monday. Which was when we all discovered for the first time that this season's tickets were going to be digital only. In other words, no option to get the tickets via email and print them out. Only tickets on a smartphone in either Apple Wallet or Google Wallet would be accepted. Yes, in addition to the almost £1,000 for the ticket, you need to own a smartphone to get through the gate. Which is when the proverbial hit the fan. I checked a couple of United Facebook groups that I'm in, and also X, the platform formerly known as Twitter. 
And as you say, people weren't happy. One lady added United saying it was a bit much to ask an 87 year old who's never used a smartphone and doesn't have one to go out and buy one. In reply, another fan offered to send this lady an old Samsung phone. Not pretty, but it'll get him into the stadium, was what he said. Because United allow you to store multiple tickets on one device, someone else suggested that if he, he being the 87-year-old father of this lady, was a season ticket holder, it was likely that he'd be sitting with people he knew. Couldn't one of them download his ticket onto their phone and swipe him in? A couple of problems with that suggestion. First of all, they'd have to meet up at the same time outside the ground every game. What if the one with the phone was unexpectedly delayed? Second problem is that in order to download the ticket onto the phone, the phone owner would need to log in to the ticket owner's United account, which means sharing login credentials. We've known the people that we sit with for 30 years, but we've only seen them 20, 25 times a year. We wouldn't necessarily trust them with our passwords. Plus, it's in the small print of the T's and C's that you can't share passwords or allow others access to your account. And if you're thinking, but once you've added the season ticket to the wallet, you could change your password, that won't work because for cup matches, there'll be separate digital tickets to download. I wholeheartedly agree with providing a digital option, but to insist on the type of phone you choose to have is taking it too far. I love my tech, but there are others who don't feel the same and they should have the right to choose how they attend. Like a season ticket card that worked perfectly well for years. All you needed to use that was a wallet to keep it in. Assuming it actually arrived, of course. Well, there was that. <laughs> One year, mine didn't turn up. I had to contact the club. I got a letter with instructions of what to do for the first three matches of the season. Short version, turn up at a specific gate and wait for club stewards to accompany me to my seat. Simple enough, you'd think. I was suspicious. I deemed it prudent to take my passport, driver's licence, credit cards and two credit card bills to prove my address, just in case. The great day came. I rocked up at the appointed gate. I wasn't alone. There were dozens of people who hadn't received their tickets. We were herded to the side of the stadium and it started to rain. Well, come on, it was August in Manchester. Of course it was raining. This was why I had had the foresight to put the letter from the club in a plastic wallet. You might be wondering why. It was printed on an inkjet printer. I know. The world's biggest club printed outbound mail on an inkjet printer. My letter was fine, but not everyone's was. First, the ink started to run. Then the paper was getting that wet it was disintegrating. By this stage, a steward had appeared to check ID. Yes, the ID they hadn't actually asked you to bring. It was in danger of kicking off. When a friend turned up who had been sat behind me for years, I could see he hadn't brought any ID with him. His letter was also sopping wet. Making a swift decision, I dashed over to him, hugged him and shouted, Hi Dad, I've got your ID here. As I then asked if, he, if the steward wanted to see the ID again, he said, No, no, I've checked your stuff, you're good. Having dodged that bullet, I thought we were safe. We weren't. 
The number of people who hadn't received the tickets was growing by the second, and the club had allocated three stewards to walk people to their seats, one by one. Have you seen the size of Old Trafford? The way this was going, we could be stood there at Christmas. The stewards told us expressly not to move, not one inch from where we were once our paperwork had been checked. Which was when the mounted police on the other side of us told us that if we didn't move, we'd be arrested. Talk about a rock and a hard place. Thankfully, by then, I'd managed to speak to you on the phone. And the steward in charge of our block, who'd known us for years, came outside to get us. He appeared like a vision from behind the backside of a police horse and escorted us to our seats. Our friend dined out on the tail of me grabbing him and saying hi, Dad, for years. It just shows any system can go wrong. But to deliberately choose to exclude someone based on their ability to pay for a smartphone is obscene. This is the club where Marcus Rashford is leading the charge against food poverty. If people can't afford to eat, what are the chances that they've got the latest smartphone for the club's convenience? Yet again, another situation where words are failing me. There was much excitement last week as a new digital asset management app arrived. Cross-platform and feature-rich from the start, it's called MediaPlace. Before I go any further, I do have to say, it's the spitting image of Eagle. Eagle being another digital asset manager that I've used for two years now. It appears to have 80-90% of Eagle's features and more of its own. The first question is though, do you need a digital asset manager? Back in my Windows days, I used to use the image browser that was built into PaintShop Pro. Now this was despite me having Photoshop. The PaintShop Pro image browser was so useful that I often ended up editing images in PaintShop Pro rather than actually transferring them to Photoshop. Particularly, I felt that way with screenshots because I was handling so many of them to shuffle them around into Photoshop when I could already see them in the image browser in PaintShop Pro was a time-wasting nightmare. Now, it wasn't long before Adobe cottoned on and added an image browser of their own called File Browser. That was back in 2003. The next version of the Creative Suite saw the file browser elevated in status to a completely separate app. You know it today as Adobe Bridge. Now, Adobe Bridge is still available and it is still completely free. You do need an Adobe account to download it, but an Adobe account is free too. Adobe Bridge is a great option if you work with Adobe files, but for other apps, including the Affinity apps, less so. The files from Affinity Publisher, Affinity Designer and Affinity Photo are not compatible with Adobe Bridge. You can see the files listed, but you don't get a preview of the contents. And it's that preview that's the power of a digital asset manager. Adobe Bridge can do a lot of other things, including file management, batch processing, generating contact sheets, but it fails at the basics if you're working with other apps. Now, Pixar and PicSave became my go-to image management apps. Sadly, Pixar was abandoned by the developer several years ago. And while PicSave is still available, it hasn't had an update since 2021. This was why I moved to Eagle. Now, there's been plenty of updates from Eagle, including a free update to a major version when they updated to version 3. 
The Eagle license is a lifetime deal. You can also choose to add additional seats to the two seats that a single license gives you. An Eagle's attention to detail and a huge range of options has kept me happy for two years now. So the burning question was, was I in the market for an alternative? Well, let's just say I didn't go looking. Media Place found me. There was a deal available for a few days where you could get a lifetime license for $37. Other than that, they plan a subscription of $119 per year if you pay annually. Now, I was most certainly not up to a subscription, but a lifetime deal? That was fine. Now, the extra features that Media Place has over Eagle are mainly related to editing features, video and audio editing, and slides. Now, knowing the history of many of these digital management apps, I figured for $37, I'd take the lifetime deal and run the two side by side where it's appropriate. The developers certainly seem keen to add requested features right now, and competition is good for customers. We all stand a better chance of seeing the features we most want added to an app when there's a competitor hovering. And as I've said, Media Place is already 80 to 90% of the way there, so it's definitely worth keeping an eye on. I certainly hope it's with us longer than the many others that have gone before it. I'm thinking of Ember, Sparkbox, Pixar and Pixave, just to name the ones that I can actually recall. I seem to have set up so many of these things in my time because the things that I want in them are things that I use repeatedly. So my chapter markers for podcast editing, posters for live shows, it's all the same stuff that I want in there. And as I say, I do seem to have set these things up a remarkable number of times. But I have used Eagle every day for two years and I wouldn't really want to be without a digital asset manager. These type of apps have matured and they make it a lot easier for me to do what I need to do. One feature that makes a huge difference is the ability to capture imagery from online sources straight into the app. Eagle does that with a Chrome extension, but Media Place has an integrated browser. You simply browse to a site and the images are displayed in a sidebar on the right. From there, with a single click, you can add an element to your library, either to the library for later organisation or directly into a specific folder. The ability to tag, to add to folders and rate images means it's easy to find anything that you're looking for. I shudder at the thought of life before a digital asset manager. Images downloaded to the downloads folder with esoteric and imaginative names usually meant hours trawling through folders of files looking for that one image that I then needed. Now, whether you try Media Place or one of the alternatives, I say a digital asset manager is definitely a huge benefit in any kind of design work. We'll be looking at the video capabilities of Media Place in the next MacBytes After Hours. So if you want to see it in action, do join us. I'm blessed to have my own office space. Not only my own personal space, but also my happy place. But as lockdown proved, not everyone is in that position. Makeshift workspaces sprang up all over. And it wasn't that we weren't touched by that either. We had to reorganise our audio production so Mike could have his own dedicated workspace during work hours. I couldn't be personally doing with setting up and tearing down a setup every day. But your mileage may vary. 
especially if you're not prepared to dedicate space to work in your home. Which is where the Logitech Casa comes in. It's a very cute pop-up work unit. There's three elements to it, a stand for a laptop, a keyboard and a trackpad. Sound standard? Well, the laptop case folds up to something that looks like a portfolio. The keyboard and trackpad are stored within that folded portfolio when not in use. So it's a book-styled case replete with an elastic strap to ensure that nothing escapes in transit. The whole thing can be set up within seconds and dispensed with at the end of the working day just as quickly. Now, I use a Logitech keyboard myself, the MX Keys, and a Logitech mouse, the MX Master 3. If these devices are anything like as good as those, then I think you'll love them. As we talked about a couple of weeks ago, I don't really set my laptop up, even on a semi-permanent basis. But if I did, I'd consider this. The issue for me with this entire kit, though, is that there's no mouse. It's a trackpad only. And to be honest, I can't be doing with that. Am I the last person on the planet who prefers a mouse? Let me know what you prefer. Now, in the reviews I read, it was that trackpad that precluded an unequivocal five-star review. Apparently, there's a slight lag when you're using a two-fingered scroll. Using one finger, the trackpad's fine, no delay at all, just the two-fingered scroll. The battery is slated to last five months in the keyboard and three weeks in the touchpad. Now, I get about a week for my keyboard and maybe two for the mouse. So I'm thinking five months is a little bit overambitious, but who knows, maybe they've fixed that. Now, what I do is I charge my devices from a power brick, and this is to remove the attendant cable hazards. So having a power brick handy solves the keyboard or trackpad unexpectedly expiring. And that was the only complaint in the review. Other than that, every reviewer absolutely loved it. Price-wise, it's $227 or £179, which is quite high, but useful at home if you're short on space and a portable way to set up an office in a coffee shop. I always wonder what the coffee shop people think of that, but I digress. It's available right now in the UK via Logitech and the John Lewis website and coming soon in the US. That's unusual, isn't it? usually get everything first. But anyway, let us know if you're tempted. Welcome to Behind the Scenes of Mike's YouTube Studio Part 2. In the last show, I talked about my initial experience of doing piece-to-camera intros and outros on my YouTube videos. In this show, I'm going to continue on that journey, looking specifically at how I get the text into the teleprompter app, why I bought a physical teleprompter and remote controls. That'll leave my lighting setup, my new background, and all things audio for next time. I'll start with the teleprompter and how I get my script into the teleprompter app. There's several ways. You can type directly into the app's built-in script editor. You can copy and paste into the app's built-in script editor, or use the import feature. I tried typing directly into the script editor, but I don't find it easy typing lots of text on the iPhone. I tried typing the scripts into drafts on my iMac and then on the phone, opening drafts, copying the text, switching to the teleprompter app, creating a new empty script and pasting the text into it. That got old fast, so I investigated the import feature. 
The text to be imported has to be a file, so you can't import directly from Drafts or Apple Notes. The app supports importing from Word, PDF, RTF and plain text. So my workflow is to type the text into Sublime Text on my Mac and save the file to the cloud. All the usual cloud services are supported, Dropbox, Google Drive, iCloud, OneDrive. I'm using Google Drive. And then I run the teleprompter app on my phone, tap import and select the file. With the free version of the app, you're limited to doing three imports, not three imports of the same file, three imports in total. Whereas with the paid version, you can import as many times as you like, which was one of the reasons that I upgraded to the paid version. The other reason was remote control support, which I'll come on to shortly. Upgrading wasn't as simple as tapping a button though. It was a bit bait and switchish. On the main app screen, there's an upgrade to premium button. I tapped it and it loaded another screen displaying a list of premium only features. Some of those features had subscription only next to them. Also on this screen, there was another upgrade to premium button. This was the one that you actually tap to make the purchase. And it said £19.99 a year. Yes, folks, another subscription. However, underneath this button in a much smaller font are the words other plans. Tap this and it takes you to another screen with more options. £19.99 a year or £14.99 one-time purchase. I went for the latter as the subscription only features, which were downloading backups of video recordings, automatically generated caption files and access to other apps from the same developer, those features weren't of interest to me, at least not enough to take out another subscription. I mentioned remote control support. To understand the benefit of that, let me do a quick recap of my setup. I had my iPhone in a holder screwed to a ring light about two feet in front of me. The iPhone was doubling up as the camera and the teleprompter. To start the recording and the scrolling of the text, I had to lean forward or get up off my chair, tap the screen and get back into position in my chair. Also, the teleprompter app has two scrolling options, continuous scroll or paid scroll. Continuous scroll simply means the text scrolls until you tap stop. Page scroll means it displays a page or screen's worth of text at a time. And to move onto the next screen of text, you tap a button. But I couldn't be stopping every 20 seconds or so to tap a next page button. So I had to leave it set to continuous scroll. But that meant if I made a mistake or a loud car went past or Lola decided to bark, I'd have to get up, tap stop to stop the text scrolling and rewind the text back to the appropriate point so I could shoot that bit of the video again. I can't stop those things happening, the cars and Lola barking and me making mistakes, but being able to control the scrolling text with a remote control would make it easier. Upgrading to the premium version of the teleprompter app would give me remote control support. It would mean that I could start and stop the recording, start and stop the scrolling, change the scrolling speed and rewind the text, all without moving out of my chair. So I started looking at Amazon and found a remote control for about £30. And then you reminded me, luckily, before I'd hit by now, that I should be able to control the app from my iPhone 7. 
which had been sitting in a drawer gathering dust. So I charged up the iPhone 7, installed the teleprompter app on it, made sure both iPhones were connected to the same Wi-Fi, hit the remote control icon in the app on the iPhone 7, and selected the iPhone 11 as the device to be controlled. I was now able to control all aspects of the teleprompter app on my iPhone 11 from my iPhone 7. When I record, I place the iPhone 7 on the table in front of me. It's easily accessible, so I can tap the buttons, but positioned in such a way that it's not in view of the camera. After a couple of weeks of working with this setup, I decided to buy a physical teleprompter. Now I know what you're thinking, why, when the iPhone and teleprompter app is so good? Well, I decided to use the rear camera on the iPhone because of its better quality. That, of course, meant I wouldn't be able to see the iPhone screen and hence wouldn't be able to see the scrolling text from the teleprompter app. So it was back to Amazon. I'm sure you've all seen teleprompters, but you might not understand how they actually work. Basically, it's a sheet of glass in a frame. The frame stands upright at an angle of about 45 degrees and behind the glass is a shelf, which is where the camera's placed. I've got it set up to use the camera on the iPhone 11. If you're using a real camera, it can just sit on the shelf, but an iPhone is too thin to stand up on its own. So how do you get the iPhone to stand up? The shelf has a small hole in it and into this hole, you stick a screw that came with the teleprompter with a threaded end pointing upwards, very much like the threaded end at the top of a tripod. You can then place an iPhone holder onto this screw and put the iPhone in it which is exactly what I did. In front of the glass, lying flat, is a tray into which you place a phone or tablet. And whatever's displayed on the phone or tablet screen, which in my case is a scrolling text from the teleprompter app, is reflected onto the glass and can then be read by the presenter. The camera is recording me as I read what's on the glass, but the scrolling text doesn't get recorded. The teleprompter that I bought has an adjustable tray which allows for different size devices. Initially, I used my 12.9 inch iPad. In fact, I bought that model of teleprompter partly because the tray was large enough to fit a 12.9 inch iPad. However, when I created a test video, the iPad was visible at the bottom of the recording due to how far the tray stuck out. So I tried it with a 9.7 inch iPad, pushed the tray in a bit, and that was much better. And that's the setup that I'm using today. Of course, I had to reconfigure the iPhone 7, which was still acting as a remote control. It now needed to control the teleprompter app on the iPad and not the iPhone 11. There's a link in the show notes to the teleprompter that I bought so that you can check it out for yourself. The teleprompter didn't come with a stand or tripod, so it was back to your magic tech drawer. Well, tech cupboard actually, because a stand is too big to fit in a drawer. We had an adjustable height stand. We'd actually bought it for a projector for doing face-to-face -face presentations. But of course, since COVID, we've not left the house, so it's been sat unused in the tech cupboard since March 2020. Okay, so just to recap, at this point, I'm using the rear-facing camera on my iPhone 11 to record the video and audio. My iPad 9.7 inch is providing the text for the teleprompter. And my iPhone 7 is acting as a remote control for the teleprompter app on said iPad. But now the iPhone 11 is further away from me than it was when it was screwed to the ring light. And it's behind a sheet of glass. 
This has resulted in a reduction in the quality of the audio. My first thought was to use my iPhone 7 to record the audio. Keep it on the table so it's close enough to me but out of shot of the camera and sync the audio to the video recorded by the iPhone 11 in Camtasia afterwards. But I was using the iPhone 7 as my remote for the teleprompter. Although the iPhone 7 could have done both jobs, the problem was that every tap would have been picked up on the audio recording. The teleprompter came with a remote, but up to this point, I'd actually just left it in the box because I was happy with the setup that I had. You know, if it ain't broke and all that. So I got the remote out of the box, paired it with the iPad and was able to start and stop the scrolling at the click of a button. I was able to scroll backwards at the click of another button. I was able to switch from continuous scrolling to page scrolling and this gave me more control. I had a page worth of text on the screen and when I've read that I click the next page button on the remote and I read the next page worth of text and so on. The only problem was that the plastic buttons on the remote were clicky clacky. So every time I press the next page button there was an audible click on the recording. I think that setup lasted one video. It was back to Amazon to look for a remote with silent clicks. I found one. I read the reviews. Someone else asked the question, does clicking the buttons make a sound? They were using it for the same purpose I was. Someone else said the button clicks were silent. So trusting them, I bought it. The links in the show notes and it worked like a charm. It's small enough to keep in my hand during the recording. I kept my hands low enough that they were out of view of the camera and I was able to press the next page button to load in the next page of text with no audible clicks. That is until I realized that as I swung my arms up at the end of the video, as I point to my t-shirt and say, have an excellent day, the remote was visible in my hand. So back to Amazon to research foot pedals. Foot pedals. Yes, foot pedals. I'd read on the Teleprompter Premium website that the app supported Bluetooth foot pedals. I remember 30 odd years ago, the typists where I used to work had foot pedals to control their dictation machines, but I didn't realize that you could now get Bluetooth ones. So I spent some time researching and reading reviews. Like I said in the last show, if you want to do it properly, there's much more to this than just pressing record on an iPhone camera. I've put a link in the show notes to the one that I bought, but basically it's a small box that you put on the floor. It has two configurable buttons on the top of it and you tap these buttons gently, I might add, with your feet. They're very popular with musicians who use them as page turners. Think about somebody who plays, say, a clarinet or a flute. I used to play the clarinet, but it was in the days before Bluetooth foot pedals. I was in the school orchestra. I only gave it up because there was a concert on the same night as the League Cup semi-final in 1983. Anyway, I digress. In the old days, musicians would have their music printed out on a sheet of paper, which would be placed on a stand, and they'd have to learn how to quickly turn the page, and more often than not, the piece of paper would probably fly off the stand. Well, the digital equivalent is an iPad on a stand, with the music displayed on the iPad screen and a foot-controlled Bluetooth page-turner, meaning the musician doesn't have to reach out and tap the screen to move on. So I paired the device with my iPad, which, remember, has the teleprompter app running on it. 
I configured one of the buttons to act as the next page button and the other to be the previous page button. And so now I control the scrolling with my feet. It took a bit of getting used to and I make sure that I'm not wearing shoes in case I press too hard on the buttons and break them as the whole thing is only made of plastic. And if I do fluff my lines, I just have to foot tap the rewind the text button until I get to the right place. It's so much easier now. So once again, that's a wrap. The end of part two. As I said, next time I'll cover my lighting setup, my new backdrop and all things audio. We're going live again on Friday, 9pm UK time. It's time for MacBytes After Hours 205. Last week included the surprise appearance of Media Place, and this week we're taking it through its paces with video creation, so don't miss that. Then I had three people ping me with the same question regarding Obsidian and how to use the available custom icons for the app. While sorting that out, I figured a way to change the icon of any app, even those running on iOS. All that and much more Friday night, 9pm UK time. Go to youtube.com slash Elaine Giles at showtime and the live show will be front and centre. Don't miss it or we'll miss you. Well, that's it for this episode of MacBytes. As always, we'd love to hear from you. Please send your questions, comments and queries by email to the crew at macbytes.co.uk or use the contact form on the website. We also have a very active Slack chat room that's open 24-7. Simply go to macbytes.co.uk slash Slack and join the conversation. You can follow MacBytes on Twitter at twitter.com slash MacBytes. You can follow me personally on Twitter at twitter.com slash Elaine Giles. And you can follow me at twitter.com slash Thomas Mike. And you can follow me at twitter.com slash MacBytesiri. So until next time, this has been Elaine and Mike bringing you MacBytes. Goodbye. Goodbye and see you next time. What are you doing now? Nothing. Yes, you are. I can see you. All right, but hush before she hears you. So what are you doing? I'm working on a new side hustle. Don't you already have enough to do? Well, yes I do, but this is easy money. Really? Really. What is it? I'm going to rent myself out on match days to folks without a smartphone. Is that a thing? It is now United are banning anyone without a smartphone from getting a ticket. Do you not think she'll notice your absence? Well, I thought you could cover for me. Did you now? Yes, I did. Just a minute, what are all those notifications you have coming in? Oh, it's nothing for you to worry about. You devious woman. What? You got your advert up there first, didn't you? Of course I did. I thought you might cover for me. Dream on woman. It's every device for themselves. <laughs>